I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, good afternoon once again. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio, and this is I-94. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning. Good to be back. Thank you. Welcome back from your paternity leave, sir. What's yeah. it like What's it like having a whole baby? Uh, better than a half baby. Yeah, it's true. You've grown a whole beard, too, I see. Yeah, yeah. Well it's done. all there, almost. Well done. Congratulations, sir. I have to work with two beardos now. Two beardos now. I know. It's such a it's such a tragedy for you here in the steamy Studio B as we come to you live on uh, June 30th. Uh, quite a, a humid and hot day here in Chicago. And we've got a hot novel, actually. We're going to be talking with the author of Scribe. It is out now from Grey Wolf Press. This is her eighth book. We are joined live from Wyoming, thanks to the magic of the phone, by Ms. Alex Alex. And Hagee. Allison, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hey, guys. How good you morning. doing? How you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's a real honor to be on with you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, Allison, for those of you who are not familiar uh, with her work, this book actually was named one of the 10 best books of the year last year by the British Broadcasting Corporation, and that's how it came to my attention. Uh, Mike and I contacted Grey Wolf, and uh, we had them send it out to us, and I think, uh, I don't want to speak for anybody here, but I think the three of us were were pretty impressed by it. Uh, And I wanted to start off, you were raised in in Virginia, and this draws very heavily on uh, Appalachian folklore and Appalachian folk tales. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this as something to talk about and write about? Yes, yes, I can. So I grew up in southwest Virginia uh, on a farm in Franklin County, but my dad's family has been in deep southwest Virginia uh, for more than 200 years, um, just sort of uh, living on tiny hard scramble farms. My mom's family is from western Maryland. So I grew up, uh, my dad was a country doctor, and I grew up with people coming to our house and asking for, to see my dad, and while they waited to see him, they would spin yarns. And when I went with my mom to the grocery store or church or to school, everybody just established their social relationships with stories. They would be funny stories, they would be tragic stories, true or not true. Um, they would be exaggerations, embellishments, um, and a lot of them had their roots in stories that folks had heard for a long time. So I, I just grew up where people would fill the space, either with music or with stories, and that has just, I think it's probably at the root of why I'm a writer coming from an oral storytelling culture, uh, black and white, that just begged, barred, and stole from lots of different sources. That brings me uh, to our next question. So these were, uh, uh, Scribe was influenced by the, the Jack tales. For our listeners that aren't familiar, Jack and the Beanstalk is one of the most commonly known, and which I believe the origin of the Jack tales is in England, but then they came over and were uh, uh, passed along in the South. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the influence of the Jack tales on, on Scribe? 
Yes. So my dad is old enough to have remembered having heard fragments of these stories from sources when he was uh, way down in Tazewell County as the boy. I think the the first sort of oral recordings were made mostly in western North Carolina in the 20s and 30s. Um, so there were a little bit of that that comes directly. From me, more directly, uh, the Jack Tales and a lot of uh, Appalachian folk tales were being revived in the 60s and 70s when I was in school. And the Blue Ridge Institute at Ferrum College was founded in the 70s, um, and they started really collecting this culture. And one of the ways they started spreading it around was taking it to the schools, having us read it, learn it, and be in sort of plays about it. And um, so again, this was something that was sort of handed to us, like, hey, this is your old culture, and it was astonishing to me that it could be traced back to England. But also, what was interesting to me was how it had been distorted and repurposed and changed in little local ways that, that I could then sort of hear coming back into the loop, if that makes sense. In Scribe, Billy Kingery is, is a devil character taken directly from um, Jack Tales' influence. Yeah, he's a bad um, dude. Yes, he is. Yeah, he is a bad dude. And again, I, you know, it, it's funny to say this now, although at the time when I was growing up, I loved every second of it. Um, my dad would just come back and tell stories, and he, he wanted them to be safe stories for us. But he would say, oh, I'd just been down to so-and-so's farm, and I had to cross so-and-so's crossroads. And, you know, that's the place where... Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so says the devil always comes out on a Saturday night, and you better be careful at the crossroads. So that kind of thing goes way back in not just English culture, but in a lot of different cultures. But, yeah, that was the kind of thing that I just would sort of hold in my head. So when I needed a bad dude um, <laughs> in my book, I just started thinking of those devil stories and also of the kind of social power that, that people who ran uh, country stores would yeah. have even when I was a kid because there was one about every I don't know six or seven miles you could you could walk to and those folks handled the mail they handled money um, they handled legal documents they had a lot of influence in their community yeah and they still do I mean I, I think people maybe listening in the city of Chicago don't realize that my, my parents happen to live in a very rural area of Connecticut and the general store still is the uh, post office it is still the place where uh, you can change checks uh, get postage stamps, all, all kinds of business actually is centered around that. So uh, when I was reading character Billy Kingery, that uh, really flashed in my mind as well. Um, and, they, and they are good. They can do uh, legal business and illegal business probably too. Well, they know. do a lot of illegal business here in Chicago, but we won't go into our bodega culture uh, too, too deeply. Uh, not mentioning the one that's been shut down down the block from us. Um, I don't want to get too far away from Scribe, but I do want to mention just one thing before we, we go into your book directly. You've also done a number of books uh, about horse racing, uh, Keeneland and, and Boleto come to mind. And, of course, I had read Boleto and not realized that you uh, had written that as well as Scribe because I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because your books, I read them at the same time I was reading the book The Lord of Misrule, which I'm sure you've, you've read oh, as well. Yes, yes uh, I have. And I wanted to talk to you briefly about that because The Lord of Misrule, Misrule made a, a very big impact on me. It's a classic uh, tale of sharpsters and horses and the horse racing culture. And I just kind of wanted to understand how you got interested in that. I know you live in Wyoming, but you, you've had kind of a... Um, You've been all over the place. You, know, you grew up in Virginia, went to the University of Michigan. How did you get involved in that culture, which is a very, very American subculture? Uh, oh, as a, it's, a, it's, yeah. a great, it's a great 
it's a great story. So I've been attracted to horses for a long time, and so I rode as a kid. Um, when I was in college, you know, I sort of first got my first taste of being around people who were training what I'd call, you know, uh, off-track thoroughbreds, usually for hunting and jumping. But it really wasn't until the early 90s, and I'd been to racetracks before, but I went to Keeneland in the early 90s, and I went to a morning workout, and I just had this weird doppelganger moment that there were women exercising these incredibly beautiful and well-known thoroughbreds who were exactly my age, exactly my size, and had very similar kinds of backgrounds. And it it was just a kind of whoosh inside me Um, because there's something really attractive about the animals. The part that once you start digging into that subculture, you're right, and the Lord of Misrule is a wonderful uh, novel, but the layers of um, chicanery, uh, deep love and respect for animals, the cultural crossings. I set Keeneland before really before most of the grooms and people on the backside were Spanish speakers. Now it's it's very intensely Spanish speaking, but it's transient. Um, and it's, it's also rooted in people who are impulsive and tend to like to take risks. So when they're not working with horses, they're gambling on almost everything else they can think of, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I, I found that horrifying and fascinating and, and riveting. And I just did as much research as I could, talked to as many jockeys and trainers as I could find, and let my net imagination just roll. I don't know about the, the Lord of Misrule. Can you give a quick background for people? It Jamie. won a bunch of awards. It, it won a bunch of awards. Yeah, the Lord. When was well, it? It came out. Uh, Allison, am I correct? It came out about eight years ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, because Boletto is twenty twelve, and so that sounds about right. And it, it's by a uh, fiction writer, and okay, her name's flown out of my head, but she'd been pretty solidly established. But she just really hit the sweet spot with this. You know, I, I hadn't uh, thought Jamie about Gord- Jamie Gordon. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. right. Yeah, okay. yeah, right. that sounds familiar. I hadn't I hadn't thought about uh, horses in literature until you guys were just talking about it, and it made me think of McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. Oh, and and uh, yeah. your your writing reminds me a lot of Cormac McCarthy's writing. Um, this one, Scribe, kind of reminded me of uh, Child of God. If you've read oh, that my. one, and, wow! And I'll say thank you. Not necessarily <laughs> in the in the, in the the extreme violence. But uh, in the tone and the, the, the blend of hearsay and, and, and folktale. And I, I just wondered if you were a fan of McCarthy. And I very much am. Okay. And I started reading him uh, before he started doing Western work. People said, you know, you need to read such re- I guess when those reissues started uh, coming out. And, and at the time, I, I thought of him as someone who was deeply steeped in Faulkner. But mm. as he... Um, became older and moved west that 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 work has been boiled down but it still has that that biblical latinate sort of foundation to it that i think is just the foundation of the way people talk in certain parts of the south oh Um, that that reminds me there was a there was a (laughs) one of the things that made me think of mccarthy is that you had every so often words that just it that felt perfect in the reading of the text but i didn't know what they meant and I, and I have that same experience in reading McCarthy. Uh, I just and, love language. And there was a word, japes. Oh. Japes. Yeah. I forgot and to look it up, and I wanted and to I know what that word means. Okay. I want to say it's like a shenanigan. Yeah. I think that's a word that I got from my dad. And I'm going to say he's one of these 
again, it just comes from his family. They have some of these words like calling a, a child a chap mm-hmm. that go way back mm-hmm. and that just sort of keep floating up in funny situations. And, and they're really picked up orally. It's not from reading Shakespeare or anything. No, I mean, and it's funny, but my mother's actually from Scotland and her family is all Scottish. Many of the words when I was reading scribe come from that Scots-Irish uh, diaspora that came over and would have settled into their area. Japes is, is something that was very common. Uh, I would hear my mom use that word all the time. So I think you're probably right. I think some of these words, uh, and we forget about that, there was an enormous uh, Scots-Irish uh, farming culture that came over into the Appalachians uh, before the turn of last century. And a lot of that language and a lot of that oral story tradition uh, comes from those people and still has been handed down. Yep, and I just, I just absorbed it like the sponge I am. And, and you throw in um, African-American stories you'd pick up and some Baptist preaching, and it all kind of starts to boil. Continuing on the, the language theme, um, there was a couple moments in your book that I, I highlighted, and they're not even words we haven't heard of or anything, but it just it was like a perfect ending to a paragraph. One was on page 29, and Hendrix is telling a story about a boy. And uh, the end of the paragraph says, He was a normal boy, or normal enough for his mama and his daddy. He grew up like he was supposed to, right to the age of seven or eight. He went to school part of the year, as did his many brothers and sisters, but the teacher made no remarks about him one way or the other. And then the line I underlined was, he didn't rise above. And that was just like, that sentence completely explains everything about this kid. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that gave the McCarthy feeling. It gives the O'Connor feeling, too. We were talking on the way here about Flannery O'Connor. My hero. And there was uh, mine too. Actually, I, I love Flannery O'Connor, and I, there was just all these really astute observations. Um, uh, another one was you were uh, there was a, a line where the the narrator said, uh, or you said, and the narrator was thinking she could hear at least two of the dogs breathing beneath the boxwoods, waiting. And you know, it's another really simple sentence, but it's like when I read that, I could I could visualize it. And there was a lot of visualization in this book. Um, I had an, uh, a real idea of what the narrator looked like, and it, she didn't look like the cover to me, but, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, but you know these book artists never read the book. <laughs> well, you know, and, I, and actually I've gotten scolded on the cover a little bit recently, and I just have to roll with it because I love June Glasson's art, but I think people read, they, they, they assemble a certain kind of woman, and she's not necessarily exactly what I see, but she's powerful, mm-hmm. um, whoever she is. Yeah, it's like uh, Holden Caulfield. Like when you ever see like a a, a, a visual of him, I'm like, that's not what he looks like. But of course, it's my own version because that book really influenced me when I was a kid. So, but I just I think that those that type of language when it's a, an extraordinarily simple sentence and I have a, a a visualization in my head, I think that's really powerful. And uh, I I was I was pretty blown away by your book. And I also wanted to mention too, I actually went to Keeneland one year for a wedding on opening day, and that's quite a spectacle. It's so amazing. It's just so amazing, and to me, the, just a step to the the Keeneland there. It, the class and the ritual and the sort of southern elegance is, in contrast to what's going on on the backside, is just so amazing. The most phenomenal hats I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> in person. Yeah, I mean, I just there's something about animals, right? So that to, to bring it together with the breathing dogs and horses, because I grew up on a farm, and I I didn't. 
you don't realize this. I, when I went to college, it suddenly became clear to me that not everybody in the world was comfortable around large animals. Or they don't know where their food comes from either. I had yeah, the, well, I had the yeah, same experience. I mean, I just, you just learn how to move and watch them, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes it can be very powerful to be with them, and it's nonverbal. And again, that was just that was kind of a gift of childhood to me, and it has really stayed with me. And I think moving, I moved to that space where people are with animals pretty frequently in storytelling because it just gives me other facets to human character that I can't quite get um, just directly. Yeah. Well, since Jeremy spoiled the reading that I was going to have oh. by actually directly <laughs> quoting from it, uh, as always, we have readings that are done uh, by Ms. Shanna Van Volt. She reads passages from the week's books. This week it's with Jeff Parker, and we want to thank our friends at International Anthem. Alice, will you stick around for a second while we play this segment of your book, and then we'll get right back Absolutely. to you? Absolutely. All right. You. So we're going to hear a reading right now from Scribe. This is by Allison Hagee. It's from her new novel. Take it away, Shanna. She served his tea in a china cup one that still had its companion saucer. They were the last pieces of her mother's cherished set. When the cup and saucer finally broke, she knew she would not feel sorrow. She predicted laughter instead, the laughter of the spurned. I'm sorry I kept you waiting, she said to Hendricks. It falls on me sometimes, the making of sentences, and it's best if I stay close to the papers until the ink has dried. It's coming to you then, Hendricks said, trying not to gawk at the arrangements she had made inside of her house. They were in the cluttered space she treated as her kitchen. There were bundles of roots and stalks hanging from the ceiling and frames stretched with small animal skins angled against the walls. There were beakers and crocks and jars. The letter's coming? It is, she said, keeping her voice oriel bright. She didn't tell him she had taken a bath of her own and that she was, on his account, indulging herself in ways she hadn't allowed for longer than she could remember. I got to tell the truth. I ain't seen more than one or two letters of the kind you write in my whole life. There was a man at the port of Charleston who would scratch out your fortune on the leaf of a palm tree if you asked. He knew all manner of foreign alphabets. And I met a miner once who carved accounts of people's sins into the black rock of a mine shaft where nobody else could reach them. You could pay him to do that. But it's new to me, asking something like this, he said, shifting uncomfortably in what she saw was a clean long-tailed shirt. I'll get at the wood chopping tomorrow. I reckon you have an axe. There's no need to hurry, she said. This isn't a race between us. He had no response to that. The tea was her concoction, sweet grasses, rose hips, mint. There was honey from one of her sister's remaining hives, but neither of them spooned at it. She had asked him to sit in one of her square-backed chairs in front of an unlit cooking fire. The men from the camp are also cutting wood on my land. Sometimes they ask. Sometimes they don't. Use care. I don't reckon they'll mess with me if I'm working for you. Probably not, she said. We have our agreement. You don't worry they'll pick you clean, he asked. It looks like there's more than a few of them set down in your fields. I've already been picked clean, Mr. Hendricks, many times, haven't you? He turned his face away from her then, his scrubbed and sun-drawn face. They're respectful, she told him, reminding herself to rest her cup on her knees so the palsy in her hand wouldn't show. They keep the camp neat, and they're careful how much they hunt and fish, but they won't use the spring water up here. They won't even sip at it. They always boil water from the river or the creek. That's just convenience, he said. I don't think so. They're somewhat afraid of me, 
no matter what I say or do. I guess everyone around here is somewhat afraid of you, he said, putting some volume into his voice. I know I am. Woof. Okay, so that was a reading from Allison Hagee's Scribe. It's out now from Grey Wolf Press. We actually haven't even talked what the book is about. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. We probably should do that um, at, at some point in this show. But I wanted, I, I chose that scene because it, it unpacks kind of neatly what's going on uh, in a kind of a, a potted sort of uh take on the book without giving too much away. A young woman is writing a letter for a man who has appeared at her house. His, the man's name is Hendricks. Um, it is after some sort of great civil war. Uh, many people are dead. Uh, it is unclear what is left of America. Uh, during the book, Allison hints that uh, there's not much of a government and what government there is is really there just to take things from the, the few survivors. There's also a couple hidden things in that reading, one of which is that the letter writer appears to have something wrong with what they make their living at, which is writing. They have a palsy in their hands. So there's hesitation in, in actually writing this letter, but there's also an air of menace because Hendricks, uh, without giving too much away, as it will come clear during the book, uh, is not necessarily what he appears to be. Uh, Allison, I wanted to turn it over to you and, and talk a little bit about the relationship between these two people because... There is a lot going on here, and and the people in the book, um, I've made them kind of uh, two-dimensional just for the sake of of kind of telling people kind of the bare bones. But there's actually a lot going on in the interaction between these two people. There's an attraction, there's there's a need, there's uh, an emotional weariness, and there's a, there's a real wariness. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the interplay between these two characters for us. I wanted to throw in loneliness, too. I mean, you, too. Summoned, you summoned it up beautifully. You know, when I, when I started the book, all I really knew was that a man was going to come and ask this woman who wrote letters to write some sort of letter. Um, and he was going to make a big ask, and she was going to struggle with it. Um, and I was going to have to figure out who they both were. Um, I think he, for me, represents, um, I mean, he's a mercenary. So he's made it in this devastated civil war by, by basically take, doing whatever it takes to survive. And he's sold and bought everything you can think of to sell and buy. So he's a sort of land pirate in that way. But he is weary. And when he meets her, he doesn't really, he's on, he's on a job. He's not who he appears to be, as you said so nicely. And they really don't like each other because I think they recognize such similarity in one another. And they're people who've done things they regret. And the weight of those things they've done have begun to wear on them. And, and just the chance to be together and not working while she's writing this letter. The chance for them to just kind of be together in a transactional way, oddly enough, creates a sort of space where these emotions begin to, to pour out. And it, I think it eventually becomes a kind of love between them. But it has aspects of uh, regret, sin, true affection, real respect, and weariness is right. They're old enough, every time they've tried to love before, it has just imploded on them. So um, there's another character, an innocent, who begins to sort of draw them together. And then when that goes sideways, they really are sort of stuck with the ruins uh, of one another. And they've either got to, got to complete this task, this letter writing, and complete this journey together, or they, they're going to have to do away with one another. 
So there's also a kind of a, a mystical um, nature. I think that's over that. I, I don't want to necessarily call it supernatural, but the woman who writes the letters lives. Uh, she's almost. Um, I don't want to say she's a witch, but she's kind of that. that they think uh, she is. They th- well, the people in the book think she's a witch, and she occupies that kind of space in folklore, even though she's not. But I, I mention that because the story is is one of a number of new dystopian uh, fictions that are out in the marketplace. And instead of, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, your book was uh, not directly compared to it, but it has been talked about in the same breath as Ling Ma's Severance, I think just because of the publishing proximity. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, obviously, uh, which is an older book, but has been made into a successful television series. We are talking a lot about these kind of feminist dystopian books, which are not new, uh, but are enjoying kind of a revival. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, first of all, why you think these books are suddenly coming to the fore, uh, and second, you kind of shied away from the more uh, obvious science fiction aspects. I think you could have done something very hard sigh with, you know, a, a fever, civil war, everybody's dead, we're all bleeped, you know what I mean, kind of thing. And yeah. instead you went for a very Americana way of, of addressing a topic that, you know, people take from different angles. Yeah, so let me try, let me try the first one. And I will say I had, I had uh, done a draft of this, and my first reader took a look at, at the very first draft described and said, hey, there's this book by Emily St. John Mandel called Station Eleven. Oh, yes, of course. You might mm-hmm. want to read when mm-hmm. you're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's a book that I think is kind of I was tidying things up. Um, helped give me permission to think about how art and culture might work when a when a, a, a society has collapsed. Mm-hmm. I, I think she does an amazing job in that book. I think part of it is my age and the age of some of these other writers about we grew up reading avidly and we didn't see as many female protagonists as we might have wanted to. Um, and so we've had the chance to sort of create those. I know that's a kind of obvious answer. Um, I've certainly had female protagonists in much of my short fiction um, and in only one of my other novels. But, but this one, when this book came to me, it, it, it came to me with both a, a desire to really explore how a woman might have power and safety in a barter culture if she couldn't physically secure herself. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so yeah. I really, really was trying to think, how might that happen? And so the position of witch is one way, witch or crone, right? Sort of create a kind of power space. But also, if you're literate, people will give you deference and, and involve you in kinds of powerful transactions, um, assuming you're honorable. And I thought to myself, well, that's one way of being powerful that's not physical, being able to read and write, being able to help people carry messages. And, and, it, and, it, and again, at least it, the culture I grew up in, the distinction between a sort of literal letter and a letter that might ask for, for some, some kind of forgiveness or some kind of other non-physical gift was a pretty thin line. So that, that part of the wonder and that her letters take on a different kind of power made total sense to me. Um, you know, the sci-fi thing is fascinating to me. I, I, I just kept saying to myself, because this book just started going into spaces I never imagined, you know, a ghost would appear or, or 
a vision would come to the main character. And I just said, I'm going to resolve this by storytelling. If I ever get stuck, I'm going to go back to this idea that I want readers to feel like they're in a tale. And so that, I think, was the way I stayed within the bounds of Americana. It was just the music I was hearing and kind of what I wanted to get after. In hindsight, I was really telling this, this book to my parents and my beloved late aunt, who was the story keeper in our clan. Um, I didn't know that at the time, really. And so um, I kept getting in tight spots. I, I, I love history and research, and I wanted this book to be real and to feel very real. But I also love how tales don't locate themselves in history and how they don't have the same consequences as certain kinds of politics might. So I stripped out the elements of the real. Uh, I didn't go into the full-time world building of um, sci-fi. I just thought I'm, I'm going to try to stay in this lane uh, of the stories that will tell you just what you need to know to get it but also leave a lot of running room for the reader's imagination, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the, the symbolism of the trumpet. Um, the trumpet mm-hmm. is pretty prominent in the, uh, in the book. And um, I also wanted to ask you something I was a little bit confused. Is Estefan the narrator's son and the symbolism of the trumpet, if you could help me out with those two? So did the former know? Okay. Uh, not not literally, although I love that. And, you know, the thing about having terrific readers is sometimes they tell you truths about your own book. Um, so maybe I need to think about that. <laughs> she kept saying, my Estefan, my Estefan. So I, and, yeah. And it, I think, I think uh, non-biologically, absolutely. Gotcha. <laughs> it'd, yeah. it'd be good to tell leaders uh, in general who Estefan is and what tribe, I guess, he's a part of just to... Yeah, so Estefan is the oldest child in this group of migrants who, when the book opens, they are camped on the scribe's land. They come every year. They're part of a seasonal set of migrations. They're people of various races, locations, and cultures who have been dislocated by fevers and probably other political violences. But they come through because their labors are uh, seasonal but also because they come always to pay homage um, to this place, and to pay homage to the scribe's sister, who was, they think, a great healer and someone who helped bring about the end of the fevers that, that killed almost all children. So Estefan is the oldest child in this camp. Um, she's known him for a couple of years, probably, and he has a little red trumpet um, that he plays very terribly. Um, but he's carried it with him always. And literally, my brother had an instrument kind of like that. So mm. that Was the, he a terrible player, too? <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the irritation and the sort of getting uh, around amidst all kinds of games, that, that was the inspiration. Um, symbolically, uh, you know, I mean, I, I just got to say it. You know, I, I grew up in a household where we went to church yeah. uh, very constantly, and... Um, uh, the Bible is a text that was referenced many, many times, and so I gave him this toy, and as soon as I gave it to him, then it, then it became this, well, the trumpets shall blow, and it became this, this instrument that literally opens up connections to, to some other dimension. You can, you can I, I wouldn't call it heaven, it's not that simple, um, but there are characters that pass across boundaries of life and death in this book 
and and Estefan's trumpet is a call, I think, to the better selves, to the to the communal selves. He's part the group he's part of are called the Uninvited. The scribe allows them to be on her land, but Billy Kingry and no one else wants them around. And so Estefan, having survived the fevers and having this trumpet that he plays to cheer up his camp and in homage to the scribe's sister and to all good things in life is really the sort of, um, you know, the let's, let's play to the angels of our better selves kind of character, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, we have so to take... he, you know, so he dies, but he, but he doesn't go away. Mm. He, we had to take a quick little break here, but we're going to be back with Allison. Allison, of course, you're going to stick around with us, I hope. Yes. Absolutely. Great. So we're going to uh, play some messages from the folks that make this station possible, and then we are going to be back with Allison Hagee. We're also going to hear another selection from her book. Her book is Scribe. It's out now from Gray Wolf Press. And a reminder that you are listening to Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM. This is direct from Bridgeport. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. There was a story her family had told for as long as she could remember, and the story was this. Once, when a great war was in its darkest days, a soldier found himself riding through the countryside. The soldier was wounded or lost or had deserted his post. The tellings varied. He had nothing left to feed himself, but he stopped at a stream, needing water for his horse at the very least. He found a woman there. She was poor. The war had taken nearly everything she had. The woman had heard the cannon for days. She wanted more than anything to avoid soldiers and what they did to one another, but she too needed water. The soldier asked for help. He said, I'm poorly, ma'am. I do not seek to trouble you in any way. But if you had bread for me, I would be grateful, a few crumbs only to keep up my strength. The woman felt she had no choice. She filled her bucket and let the soldier back into her hard-used home. Her husband had been gone for many months fighting for the other side. She didn't know if he was alive or dead. The soldier didn't remind her of her husband. The soldier's accent was thick and foreign, and he was very, very young. She had cornmeal and one last egg. She baked the soldier a johnny cake. He said, You have saved me with your kindness, ma'am. I want to repay you. I have a few things of value left in this world. My home and my horse are two of them. Please gather your children so I may show them a third. The woman was afraid. She knew soldiers. She refused to gather her children. I want nothing from you, she said. The soldier insisted. He behaved as though he was in the last useful moments of his life. Please, he said. I mean no harm. The woman's children, large and small, came in from the fields and the barn and the places they had been hiding. Their eyes were bright with wariness. They too had heard the cannon. I was brave once, the soldier said, weeping. I served a great general with valor. He awarded me this gold coin. I have kept it ever since, never meaning to spend it at all. But it seems right to spend it now. And he slipped the coin from his waistcoat. It was delicate and flashing. Its surface was engraved with the general's long and famous name. The woman had never seen anything so rare. I leave it with you, the soldier said, getting to his feet. There's no more valor in me. Feed yourselves as you fed this stranger. After placing kisses on the pale cheeks of the woman's daughters, he rode away. 
But the woman did not spend the coin for much needed food or seed or wooden cloth or news of her missing husband. She held on to it tight. At her death, it went to her oldest child, who also passed it along, unspent. So it went from family member to family member. There was no valor in any of them. They had outlasted a war where brother fought against brother, where people had to choose a side. They never forgot that. What they invested in, instead, were hard, forged links of memory. And welcome back. You're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio, 105.5 FM, Chicago. We are speaking today with the author of Scribe, a novel out now from Grey Wolf Press. Allison Hagee is with us. And before the break, we talked quite a bit about her novel and uh, the background of it, her background in Virginia and in Appalachian folktales. This was, uh, you just heard the second reading uh, of the show, and of course that was thanks to Ms. Shanna Van Volt and Jeff Parker today. We also want to thank the International Anthem Recording Archive for, for giving us that music. We chose that reading because it kind of sums up some of the themes uh, in Ms. Hagee's book. That is a story uh, about a soldier during a war who, of course, gives a gift uh, as a thank you, and the family, instead of uh, doing what you would think would be logical with a financial gift instead holds onto it and hoards it because the object itself is more valuable to them, it seems, than the actual financial remuneration. And that seemed to be a theme that kind of went through the book, this idea of holding on to memories with, with physical objects. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, Allison. Sure. So first, that story is a barely um, changed tale that comes from my own family. Um, and it's one that we still tell often, and there is a gold coin I think my great-great-grandmother got during the Battle of Antietam from a soldier. Yeah, and, and she, I mean, she was so poor, it's astonishing to me. That, that $10 gold piece was worth a lot in 1863, um, and she kept it, and we still have it. And I, I think it's, it's, it's something a little bit perverse. It definitely comes from the Scottish culture, though, I think, of this sentiment that you give to objects and the stories that you wrap around them. And, and that, you know, you get this sense of nostalgia and history and who we are, who we could have been. So there can be a lot of anger and loss in those stories as well. But I think that's really very much my own family's culture with the strengths and weaknesses um, Thereof, And the South I grew up in, gosh, it's so scary to think about this. Um, I mean, the Civil War was still very much alive, and it was spoken of with, as if it were a series of great, noble events. You know, lie upon lie upon lie. Um, and I had relatives who fought in both sides. So I, I think that that, that idea, and I, my, I was talk, talking to my mother on the phone yesterday, and she was talking about, how she plans to dispense with the eight or ten objects in her life that she believes tell her own story. Uh, and it's so ingrained, you know. She can't possibly give the ring outside the family because if she did, something terrible would be lost. The ring must stay <laughs> right. within the family. And, and that importance to people of a certain generation, but I, I think we have other ways of doing it now if we're younger, is just so incredible. Um, so anyway, it's both the way we tell truths, but also how we reinforce uh, the lives and, erasures in our, it, lives and erasures in our own histories, I think. Yeah. And I'm really interested in that as a writer. 
It's interesting. I also chose that that story out of a, a perverse family story of my own. Um, as a child, my mother kept a horse's hoof um, <laughs> on, um, this is not a joke, on our kitchen window. Still funny. And it was because uh, when my grandmother um, was younger, she was to marry another man, not my grandfather, who was a rider. And he happened to be kicked by a horse and suffered brain damage. And the family called the marriage off. So my mother has this horse's hoof, which is a reminder of the person she could have been had my grandmother married the person she was originally going to marry and not my grandfather. So uh, this very macabre memento is, is still at my house, by the way. <laughs> it is still yeah, so, sitting. I mean, that, it's, it's, she's Scottish, right? So she this is, is, yes. That, yeah. This is how all these ballads got written. Yeah. Feel free to write a ballad. Um, <laughs> That's an awesome story. Yeah, don't steal it. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have dibs. You have dibs. I've but got I mean, as a kid, oh, I would have just stared at that hoof. I wouldn't have heard a word your mother said. Oh, I, I did stare at that hoof, and I still do. Every time, every time I go home to visit them on the farm, I'm looking at that hoof, and it, you know, it's never lost its kind of creepy power. And that that kind of is why, you know, again, that was why I, I chose this because it really reminded me of the kind of folk tales, you know, in and around my own family. Uh, and I'm sure you had this as well. I think all of us do to a, maybe a lesser extent, but so many stories about people coming from the old country to America were tinged with a, a real morbid tragedy. And a lot of times those stories were told in a way that 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 tragedy and that punch was kind of hidden. Is that, If that makes sense, there, there, if yeah. you dug down into the story, you realize that these people had... had suffered tremendous hardships, but they were telling the stories in a way to inoculate people from it and, and to remind people of what they'd gone through, but not necessarily to hit them over the head with it. I, I think that's kind of a, an important distinction. Yeah, no, I think, I, think the, I think that's really true. And I think one of the things that it, it has done for me as a writer, um, one of you mentioned the violence in the book early on. I, I am so used to a certain kind of cultural way of talking and thinking about violence and that all good stories have tragic violence at their center that I was completely inured to some of the uh, facets of this book and I, 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 I myself have been inoculated I think and uh, I, I love sort of trying to recreate that mournful air but I don't think that I've really interrogated entirely what lies at the root of it even for, for me as a writer um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. You know, uh, we're not really immersed in the in the publishing and literati scene here, and I, most of my friends aren't even big readers, Allison. So when I find a book like this that I like so much, I, I share it with a couple people in my life who are who are also big readers. And I sent uh, I sent a message to to one person, and the, and the first thing they responded with was because uh, I I sent them the cover of the book which has a woman holding an axe and uh she said is it violent <laughs> because she she's averse to, to yeah. cinema and 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 literature that that's really violent and it made me think i i told her there was kind of an undertone of violence to it that was hard to explain but by i thought it was relatively tame um, Except for the impaled dog's head on the, how do you say it, Cairn? On the Cairn? <laughs> yeah, on the Cairn, yeah. Cairn, yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's the, to, to me, the violence was off stage, but one of you used the word menace from the get-go, and I think that that's there. I've had people ask me the same thing. Should a younger reader read this? Is it violent? Well, are you, oh. are you a teacher, a uh, professor at the university? 
am. Okay, I so I remember a, a year or so, maybe it was more than that, a, a, there was a big piece in the New York Times about uh, a student organ, students organizing it at some Ivy League school, I think, about their needing to be uh, like warnings given or warning labels yeah. on, on literature for, for students that have experienced certain kinds of trauma. And I, I was wondering what your thoughts on that were and... Um, if you've had any experience with that in, in teaching with your students? You know, it's a, that's a really interesting question. So I have had some experience with it. Um, I have personally, uh, so to me, great literature always goes into the, the moments of contradiction and often uh, disruption. So there is violence. And I have been, I want to be careful about screening people or censoring people in any way. What I have found is that students themselves do a nice job of framing either their own work for people who are coming up with it, um, or folks who feel like they might be triggered have done a pretty good job of, of sort of letting folks know. I feel like it's a delicate, it's a delicate space because I'll give you an example. Like, how Blood Meridian is a is a book that I find a really interesting novel, right? I have a tattoo it, of Blood Meridian on my back. <laughs> <laughs> that okay. So, but how, how do you you read it in order to think about? I read it in order to think about American violence in ways that I haven't thought about before. I mean that it is it is so far reaching and so devastating and so. Um, infectious. I mean, that's one of the things I read that book for. So I, also, there's tons of stuff that happens narration-wise that I think writers should know about. But there's tremendous rape, pillage, you know, the peeling of children, what, you know, whatever, whatever baby you tree. want. Yeah, in a book like that. So I don't want to put it off limits um, to readers in any way. So I, I, I've kind of struggled to be in that pace. I, I, I do think that the current times have, have, have made writers like me think more wisely about when we put certain bodies in peril. Mm-hmm. Um, I will I say this, Allison. I'm a librarian, and um, I'm a firm believer of the Freedom of Information Act, and I don't think anything should have warning labels or censorship. I think we're taking away this sense of exploration um, I also think, for me anyway, like I'm a combat vet, and I read a lot mm. of war stories. They're kind of therapeutic for me to see that other people had been through those things. And this is just me. Um, but I'll tell you, I have a really hard time um, with violence. Mike and I both have two rescue dogs. I have two rescue pit bulls mm-hmm. and violence against dogs. Um, and and I'm not saying that I need a trigger warning or anything, but I, they, that dog's head on the Karen. How do you, Karen? Karen. 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 Yeah. And then uh, there was quite a bit of violence <laughs> against dogs, but dogs also had a central role in the story. They were uh, they were guardians. They were hunters. Uh, it was a very fascinating. They were guides omens too. Guides, omens mm-hmm. as well. Guides yeah. and omens, and I, I think that that the the dogs in the story were, were uh, prevalent and, and important. And you know, there's this horrible violence against humans, so why not you know violence against dogs too? Um, but I just wanted to point that out. I thought it was uh, it was really cool how, for lack of a better adjective, but how you use dogs in that way. And, and when you think about it, when you're in a situation like that, how important that would be. I, I think the tough thing is, is 
at least with art, is is this line between violence as pure spectacle and violence as writing the way the world is. I mean, there, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence in the world. Yeah. Well, even with yeah, blood. I, mar- yeah, yeah that was that, that's smart. That's smart. And I feel like as writers, we we have got to be realistic about the way the world is. And how do you like sugarcoat the slaughter of Native Americans? You know, I mean, that's that's what Blood Meridian's <sighs> about. You know, and uh, I mean, it's about a lot more than that, but that's you know a central theme throughout the story and it's and that was a horrible disgusting time in our history and it's it's like you know slavery or the holocaust or something like that you can't write a novel about those things and not address you, violence you guys remember that that book of stories that came out i don't know maybe seven eight years ago crimes in southern indiana oh yeah mm-hmm. i felt like that teetered on the other side of violence's well, it's like, it's like that grit lit where yeah. it's just like violence yeah. for violence sake. sake. Violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the horror core kind of stuff. I think I think there's a, a line there, but I mean, I think, and we're, we're running out of time here. This, this show has just flown by, and, and Allison, again, thanks so much for, for spending this much time with us three knuckleheads. But, no, you're um, not knuckleheads. You're incredibly mm. generous and sharp readers. I'm just really excited and honored. Well, well thank, thank you so you. much. We are, too. The, just to kind of put a, put a pin in this, we, we haven't necessarily... Talk, and I, I don't want to spoil the book. We would encourage people to go out and, and pick it up. This is a it's a, a quick. I would say it's a quick read. I, oh, I read it very quickly myself. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's it's not a um, what, about 160 pages. I would Something say. Like that, yeah. uh, well, and it's not often all three of us like the book. Too. That's true. Yeah. We, we, no, we rarely all, we try and pick stuff that we all like, but it's impossible. And all of us were just like, "This is so good." Yeah, oh, it's a well, very well-reviewed book, and and we very much enjoyed it. But kind of to put a, a, a final note in it, uh, the book. Um, we, we've talked about its dystopian themes. We've talked about the fantasy and witchcraft elements. What we haven't talked about is halfway through the book, um, there's a betrayal that happens. And I wondered if briefly, without giving kind of any spoilers, you could talk about uh, the character of Billy and we could talk about our scribe and talk about what what is going to happen to her uh, as this book moves ahead. Because that is a central theme of the book that plays into... In fact, the entire setting that you've created, there has been this horrible civil war. There's been this horrible betrayal of, of the American people who are in this. And what happens uh, between Hendrix and the scribe and Billy is kind of, um, in a way, a reenactment of all the things that have come before it. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, a, that's wonderful. You know, Billy is, is a bad dude, and he is the power guy. And the, it, once, once she has to deliver this letter, so that's part of the bargain she's made with Hendrix, is that she will memorize this letter she's written and take it to the person who needs to hear it the most. And the only way she can get passage on the road is by asking Billy for that passage. And in the way of the devil or all people of power, he will only let her go if, if she gives him something. Um, and rooted in that is, is both that he's going to exact his price, which he does. The devil makes you have a meal with him before you're allowed to pass the crossroads. That's the old jack tail. Yep. That meal was crazy, with. too. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes, it, well, yes, it is. But, but also, she, and, and to me, this is part and parcel, her, she has a sibling. We know very early on, second or third page, that that sibling is dead, that sister is dead. And what we don't know is what role she may have had in the sister's death. And it turns out that Billy Kingry, in the way of the, the people who run stores in the country, he knows everything. Right. And he knows exactly uh, how she has 
betrayed her own family in the past and how he can leverage that. And, and the real question is whether someone like Hendricks, who is a mercenary, can ever access his conscience ever again to help right a wrong that he perceives. And I, I guess when you put those three characters together with those three elements, sort of betrayal and mercenary behavior and someone who wants power, um, I, I hope you're going to get a great story. You do. We, you we do. thought so. Well, we have been speaking with Allison Hagee. She's the author of Scribe. It is out now from Gray Wolf Press. Uh, we, as always, is our tradition of this program. We're going to let the author have the last word. We're going to have our final reading. Once again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt, Jeff Parker, and International Anthem. Allison, thanks so much for spending Allison, part of your Sunday you. with us. This thank is great. you, Allison. Oh, no, really great. Good luck, you guys. It's just such an honor. What an outstanding show. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. We will be back shortly with more I-94, and stay tuned to more on Lumpen Radio. We leave you with this final reading. Once again, we've been speaking with Allison Hagee. Scribe a novel. It's out now from Grey Wolf. We'll see you next week. So it's over and done with, she said, feeling a queer, watery flutter in her legs. She looked sorrowfully at the trumpet, which was quite out of reach now. Your visit to me was never about the letter I could write for you. You lied to me, and I believe those lies. There's no one at the crossroads who needs to hear me speak the words in your letter. You don't even care if I get there. The girl you loved is dead. No one is waiting for you to confess a single deed. You've lured me out of my house, probably to destroy me. You kept your promise to me, the boy said, still pink and young in the cheeks. He seemed uneasy with her summary of things. He'd begun to pick at the knot on his trousers. You've been honorable. You tried to carry them words you wrote and what they signify from one place to the next. After all the walking we'd done together and all the talking, I want to call it a fair swap, even though you never got to fully finish your part in things. You've been good to Mr. Hendricks and good to me too, every chance you had. But yes, ma'am, there was other trades on the offer sheet. There was other people, powerful ones, who wanted what they wanted. You had to be tricked out of your house. There was a wicked plot for it all, and now we're nearly done. He took the red trumpet and placed it to his ageless lips. Stop, she whispered, suddenly aware that something had begun to stir within the ruined space of her belly, something wide-feeling and warm that coiled itself up through the defeat that had been slousing along her bones. It was a powerful force, this coiling. It heated her through and pressed itself against the deep root of her tongue. Stop a minute. There's one more thing I need to say, a piece I've remembered. I have some words for you, please. These words, they go like this. At this time, in the valley of the river, they call the Blackwater. And she closed her bleary eyes, hoping the boy would allow her to go on, hoping against hope. The boy paused. He lowered the trumpet just an inch and looked squarely at her with his saltpeter eyes. This, she realized, was the true reason for her journey, the letter. Hendrick's letter was inside her. She had it with her, every word, and it was coming forth. She was telling it. This was what the council had wanted her to be prepared for. The letter knew Hendrick's future in ways his boy self did not. She had written it under the man's direction, and she could recite it now, detail after detail, and pray the boy would listen and glean and act to change his future. It was all a writer could do, lay out the consequences of a person's choices. Let him hear it all, she thought, her tongue furling with desperate eloquence. Let him listen to the story. Let him hear exactly who he is and who he might yet become before he decides which notes to blow.
is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Allison Hagee, author of Scribe, out now from Grey Wolf. This episode originally aired on June 30th, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.